As you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Very excited to be starting a new series with you all this morning. Going to be taking a look at the Ten Commandments over the next, well, ten weeks. As we, well, hopefully, we'll, we'll see how long it takes. <laughs> we were in Luke for two and a half years, so we'll, so we'll see. In Exodus chapter 19, this is be the chapter before the enumeration of the Ten Commandments that Christ brings to us. And I start here because I want us to see the background, the context for these Ten Commandments. This is something that is grounded, as I said earlier, is grounded in the earlier gracious activity of God, as it has always been. That God has acted in grace, and from there has commands for us. These are beautiful things, and I hope that we'll be able to see that as we look in our passage today. So again, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord to us today. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people of Israel and all, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses, told the words of the, of, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people. All around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, that is, with an arrow. 
whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to this God who can cause mountains to tremble. And let us ask his help in understanding his words and his commands to us today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, <coughs> we have a dramatic passage that's in front of us. I ask that you would help us to see this passage properly. May we have a holy reverence and fear as we approach you, yet also a tremendous sense of being loved and treasured as we come to the God who has rescued us. Oh, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is a very dramatic moment in the course of redemptive history. This is something that we have been waiting for for a long, long time in the Old Testament. As you may remember, in the book of Genesis... When God created all of the world and set man in his garden, his treasured possession together, he was able to come down and walk with them in the cool of the evening, enjoying fellowship together with his creation, and especially his creation, humanity, which bore his image. But tragically, his image bearers, though given a tremendous grace 
Given all the world, a beautiful garden with all these lovely trees that produced bountifully their food, he gave them one command. That was the covenant. They could stay as long as they kept this covenant. But they didn't. They violated that promise. They disobeyed God's one command in the midst of all of his graciousness and brought about a separation between man and God. No longer could God walk with humankind because now his humankind was filled with sin, a rebellion against their creator. And God is so holy, so separate, so righteous. He can't be in the presence of that because he will destroy whatever sin he sees in front of him, which would include his people. So instead, he promised that there would be a promised one, a seed, a child that would one day be born, that would set all of this right, and that one day God and man would dwell again together. Well, this promise has gone on, and God has continued to visit his people throughout the book of Genesis particularly for one servant in particular, his name is Abraham. Though he was 100 years old, was promised that he would be the father of a great nation. And this great nation grew up in slavery, a people that no one liked, a people that no one respected, in the clutches of the most powerful country that the world had seen at this point, Egypt, at the height of their power, building structures that are still around today. And yet, in God's graciousness, as he promised, he rescued this people from slavery and had brought them out of the clutches of this most powerful nation and has brought them to this mountain. That's where we find ourselves here. God had promised that he would do exactly this in Exodus chapter 3 when he called out to Moses out of the burning bush And it said, you will know that I am the Lord your God when I bring my people to this mountain to worship. And here we are in Exodus 19. The journey has now been brought to this mountain, and here God has come. And we're going to see two things as we look into this passage today. There's not going to be as clean of a division as we normally have in our um, passages that we preach. Here, we're going to see a little bit of going back and forth with each of these two concepts that we're going to see today. And you can see that on the back of your prayer guide, a little outline put in your bulletin. The first point is that God is unapproachably holy. God is unapproachably holy. But the number two, that God has come to free us and to bring us to himself. We're not able to approach God on our own. But God can bring us to himself. How is he going to do that? Well, we're going to see. So let's take a look. Exodus 19. First, we have to have an appreciation for how holy God is. We will not appreciate how we have been brought into the presence of someone so magnificent until we see how magnificent he is. This is what we see in these first several verses of God's holiness. The first thing to note is that when God is speaking to his people, he is doing so through a mediator, through Moses. God has picked one person to be his message, message carrier between him 
and the people. And we see this mentioned several times of Moses coming up to the Lord. Lord says, go down to the people. Moses goes back down to the people, hears their words, brings it back to God. God responds and he goes back down. We see Moses going up and down this mountain many, many times in verses 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 19, 20, 21, 24, and 25. When God wants to make a point, he repeats it. And the repetition is, is that there is separation here. God is very holy. Now, as you know, the word holy means separate, distinct, reserved for a specific purpose. And this is what God is. He is perfectly holy, such that is the effects of the situation we see in Genesis 3 is still here. God cannot just come down and walk with his creation. They are still sinners. And what's more, not only do we see that God is holy because of this mediator, one that God has specifically chosen and consecrated for this purpose, but that the people need to prepare to meet with God. There are multiple things that he makes reference to. Is the one was to wash their clothes. These would have been, the, the language that's used here makes reference to the clothes that they got from Egypt. Remember when they were led out of Egypt on that Passover night? And God had said that they, that he was, that they were to ask their Egyptian neighbors for supplies. And by doing so, he plundered the Egyptians. Amongst those gifts were clothing. But those needed to be consecrated. Those needed to be washed and purified. Presumably, the people needed also to wash themselves as they were to approach God. And this was a two-day process to prepare for meeting the Lord. This is not someone that you casually approach. This is not someone that we enter into his presence lightly. But there needs to be transformation. There needs to be cleansing if we are going to approach God. And he's making this point with their washing of the clothes. He made the same point, by the way, as commentators pointed out back in Exodus chapter 3. When, the, when Moses encounters the burning bush and he begins to approach it, what does God say out of that burning bush? Take off your shoes. Where you're standing is holy. There's a different posture when we come to approach God. And this is the point that he is making. Notice also, and again, here in those latter portions of the chapter that we were reading, when God makes a command to Moses to not let the people approach and come up onto the mountain and makes him go up and down twice to affirm this, of saying, you can't come up here. There is a boundary line. One commentator had noted that this mountain was serving as sort of like a prototype for the temple. They were able to come up to the foot of the mountain, the rest of the people, but no further. The priests were allowed to come up a little bit further than that, but they weren't, but they had a boundary line where they had to stop. Moses, acting as a sort of high priest, he was able to enter into the presence of God himself. These limits and separations. Of course, we see even today... Uh, that this now, we've seen that we have the ultimate high priest, the ultimate Moses, Christ, who has ascended into the presence of God and has bought our redemption. We see these first hints of that here. But for now, there is separation. 
And what about this sort of odd command that Moses gives here in verse 15? Said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. What is he talking about here? Is he saying that women are inherently more sinful and corrupting? No, that's not what Moses is saying. This is a euphemism for marital intimacy. And that, this was, that they were to refrain from this activity before going into the presence of God. Does this mean that sex within marriage is a dirty thing and a corrupting thing? No, that's not what it's saying. Well, what this is making a reference to later on in Leviticus 15, there were going to be commands about if you're going to approach the Lord, that, there, that you needed to be ceremonially clean. And one of the ways of being ceremonially clean is, you, is that there were to be no recent expulsions of bodily fluid. And this could, in, this could entail everything from a sore to a discharge in your nose. And the reason why the Lord was so strict about these things is that the loss of fluid was associated with death, particularly bleeding. Death was, of course, the result of sin. This is how strict God is being here. Anything even remotely associated with sin or death had to be put on hold if we were going to come into the presence of God. One commentator had noted that this was setting the tone early, that even good desires needed to be submitted to God. Even those things that are good for us, encouraged in the scriptures, every part of our lives is put in submission to God. that begins even here. And here, as the Lord descends, all these things have been put in place. And then we have the dramatic reveal of who God is. But yet, they're coming to see God, but yet they're not able to see Him. They're able to see this thick cloud of smoke and hearing thundering and lightning, and even the mountain itself is trembling. Later on in chapter 20, you'll see the people themselves are trembling. And the same word, trembling, is used both of the people and of the mountain. The mountain itself is trembling under the presence of God. They're not able to see his face yet. That is currently enshrouded in smoke. Because as we'll find out later, no one can see the face of God and live. Not even Moses. So here, this is making a very, very dramatic opening to who the Lord God is. He is holy and unapproachable. But yet God has come to do something wonderful. He's come to bring sinful people into his presence. But how is he going to do that? That's what we're going to take a look in our second point. Again, we've been scattered throughout the passage So we're going to come back up in chapter 19 early on. Here, the Lord, the point we're going to look at here is that God has come to free us and bring us to himself. That's exactly what he has done here. He uses this wonderful descriptive language that he has borne them up on eagles' wings, bringing them to this mountain, this people that don't deserve this. This has been a gracious working of God. And has brought them here to this mountain. Now, what mountain is it? Mount Sinai. Do we know exactly where this is? Frustratingly, we don't. We don't know exactly which mountain this is. We've got a couple of ideas as to where this might be. There have been a few candidates for what Mount Sinai might be. 
But wouldn't it be wonderful if we knew exactly which mountain it was that, Christ, that God had descended onto? And if you're thinking that, well, that's, that's, this is the reason why we don't know. We'd probably go up there and turn, and turn it into an idol. The Lord has descended into our hearts. We don't need a mountain. So we don't need to know exactly where this is. But we do know this is a physical place that the Lord has brought his people to and to make his demonstration. He's brought them to this mountain just as he's promised. This isn't even something that's new that God has done. This has been in continuation of the promises that he's made from the very beginning. As he makes mention of later on, this is the Lord fulfilling his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, bringing them, their people straight to this mountain. But now what does he want these people to do? Who are these people? What does he want them to make them? Indeed, look in verse 5. Here he's just described, he's brought them here to this mountain. And verse 5, now therefore, I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, I've set you free, I've brought you to this mountain. Now what? Verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what the Lord has promised to his people. First, let's take a look at this term, treasured possession. Kings would have a royal treasury. This would be something that when you're gathering up money from taxes and things like that, you put it into this account to be used for military spending and all these other things that, that you do. But the word that he uses here for treasured possession is something that the king owns himself, his own personal treasure that he loves. And this is what the Lord is referring to as these people, his treasured personal property, the people whom he delights in, this treasured people. But what does he want them to be? What does it mean? to be a treasured possession of God. Well, he describes it. In verse six, it should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? Well, first of all, what does a priest get to do? Gets to be in the presence of God. He gets to have access to the Lord, the one who has made heaven and earth. He has told these people who weeks ago were slaves, unvalued, they are now going to be the people that have access to God. What does this also entail? A priest is also one that leads other people to God, to be this intermediary. That's what the people of Israel were supposed to be, to the rest of this nation, a separate people that would invite others to meet God. Their distinction would be that they are holy that they would be different. This is a beautiful promise that God has made. There have been some that have looked at what the Lord is doing here, as commentators have pointed out, and see that there seems to be similarity to ancient covenant ceremonies that used to be done in the ancient Near East. There were, we have found, there was a a system within the Hittites that that was a covenant that was laid out in a similar way. 
The king would come to a group of people, the superior to the inferior, and would say, here are the things that I've done for you, and here are going to be the stipulations that I command, and would list out commandments, things that he would require of them. And there have been those that would look to this and say, aha, we see the same form here. The Lord is adapting the use of covenant ceremonies that the people would understand so they would see this covenant. And that's true to a point. Yes, we do see parallels, but there are also things that are very different and quite unique that are unlike anything else that's been done. Commentators have pointed out that the, that the Lord is making this covenant. This is God to a people. This is something that the Lord that, that, a, that an ancient God has never done with his people. Gods don't bind themselves to their people. Nor do we see in the king's covenant that he would make, that the king would make these commandments of his people because he needs something from them. The Lord doesn't need anything from his people. So there are similarities, but this is something really unique that the Lord is doing here. So what's that going to look like? Well, he's going to list those out in the Ten Commandments that are to follow. You see, again, as he begins in chapter 20, it says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then is going to list what he requires of his people. Now, we have a complicated relationship with the Ten Commandments in modern American society today. Even amongst the church. To the point where we're saying, well, if we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, isn't that, isn't that kind of legalism? Aren't we getting caught up in rules? I thought it was about a relationship. What are you doing bringing in all these commands for? Well, again, as we are looking at these commands, this is still centered in the gracious activity that the Lord has done first. The Lord has acted on our behalf. He's made us his treasured possession. He's going to change us. And he's going to list out, and a lot like what I read in the Beatitudes today, a portrait of what a holy nation looks like. Because it looks like their God. God is revealing himself. When we, although we, are, we have known this as the Ten Commandments, it actually should be translated the Ten Words. It's the words of God. And the word for word here in this passage can also be the word for deeds. The Lord is revealing himself and who he is and how he acts in these words that we see here. There's a lot of nots in here. But for each not, like thou shalt not lie, there is a corresponding then implied promise of here's what to do. Be honest. The Lord our God is honest. He calls us not to break covenant fellowship with one another, not to commit adultery, because we are to be a faithful People that honor our covenants just like our God. That's what we're going to see in this. This is not a list of commands that are meant to be burdensome. That's why it says that the commandments of the Lord, they are not burdensome. But this is actually a portrait of freedom as the Lord defines it. Say, well, this doesn't feel very free to me. This sounds like a lot of hard things for me to do and stuff that I don't do naturally. Yes, because you're a sinful person. Would you like to not be that? Would you like to be free of your sin that is destroying you? 
When have you ever sinned and then said, yeah, no, that was exactly the thing I should have done. I don't regret that at all. We've never said that. We keep doing it. Would you want to be free from that? Would you like to be remade in the image of God? The image that our father and mother, Adam and Eve, our covenant federal heads, broke? This is what it looks like. This is the portrait of freedom and what he brings to us today. Separating us from sin that destroys us, even if we're unaware of it. That's the most insidious thing. Sin feels very natural to us. And the Lord is showing us how unnatural this is. And that instead of helping us, this is harming us. It's not what our culture says, though. Our culture says do whatever it takes to get ahead. Lie, cheat, steal. You only got one life. Live it for yourself. Those people always seem to be the unhappiest. But they pursue it. It's our natural bent. The Lord is going to show us a better way. So we give, he gives us these commands. There are three ways that we can use these commands. Three uses of the law. They've been um, hammered out and different ones have been emphasized throughout church history. And we'll see each of these working as we will examine each of them in turn. But I'm going to give you the the overall three uses, and we'll see how they work as we go in these weeks. The first one is the civil use of the law, a law for building society. Isn't it wonderful that murder is illegal, at least outside the room for now? This is a building blocks of society. There needs to be an expectation that we can have personal property, which is implied in thou shalt not steal, that there is going to be regulation even on the way down to what you desire to do, as we see in the 10th commandment. This is a beautiful building block for the rest of society. In fact, there was one secular writer, uh, I think it was Newsweek back in the early 20s, who had said that one of the greatest contributors to law was in fact not the Greeks, but the Hebrews. We have had these list of 10 commands to build the rest of society, and in 3,000 years, we have not improved on them. And he's writing from a secular perspective, but it's true. Is the building blocks of society. But more than that, these commands also are meant to teach us something, namely how much we need Christ. If you looked at the commandments and say, yeah, I got a perfect score on those. If you didn't, join the rest of us. And if you think you have, then take a look at the eighth commandment a little harder. Shall not lie. These are meant to show us how much we need Christ. Luther, in his typically uh, extreme way of looking at things, he sees the Ten Commandments as like an axe that you use to hack at the root of your self-righteousness. This is meant to show us how much we need Jesus by hacking away at our own conception that we are good, part of our own blindness. We think we are good when we are actually evil. Calvin uses a little bit tamer method and shows us that the Ten Commandments are like a mirror and that they show us who we are and our face that is dirty and gives us the waters of the gospel to wash. We don't try to heal the tree with an axe, nor do we try to wash our face with a mirror. 
But these things are meant to drive us to Christ so that we can see that he is the only holy one who can rescue us from ourselves. And that's going to be something we're going to emphasize a lot here in this series. These commandments are not the way that we become Christians. These are not ten steps on a ladder that we can use to climb our way to heaven. So that's not because we can't do it. But instead, Christ has come down, just like God coming down on this mountain, and has come face to face to rescue us, living all of these commands perfectly, thought, word, and deed, and all the implications of each of these commandments, and then dies the death that we should have died for our sin. Like the people here who might touch the mountain that they were to be executed here, Jesus is executed on our behalf and has brought us to himself. And if we repent, put our trust in him and in him alone for our salvation, then we will experience this holiness that we see. Christ will give us his record that we can present before God that allows us access into God's presence. But what about beyond that? Are the commandments still relevant for people that have come to Christ? Is this just meant to be a road sign to point us in the direction of Christ and that we don't look back at the sign ever again? The answer is no. There have been some that have tried to say, like, well, we're under a new law, the law of love, and we, we have been transformed by Christ, so now we just kind of live in that realm. Well, that sounds confusing. The Lord has brought me to himself and says he wants me to be holy and then wants me to ad-lib that? No. He gives us these things. To try to take this other approach, as one Puritan writer once said, would be like trying to have the sun following the clock. And that's not how this works. Our hearts are to follow after the son of righteousness. And these are still his commands. They're still relevant for us. So how do we keep this from being legalistic? How do you know when you're looking at these things as a rule for life, which is the third use of the law to direct us how we live? How do we know when we're starting to get legalistic and starting to try to take the mirror off the wall and wash our face with it? Alistair Begg had had a wonderful question to ask yourself. How do you react when Satan accuses you of sin? Do you try to justify yourself? Try to say, oh, no, well, I haven't really done that. Or, well, it's not as bad as you're trying to characterize it. Or you just point to Christ and say, yes, I am a sinner. There's no righteousness in here. Of course you can accuse me of all these terrible things. Many more things you haven't accused me of that you could. But Christ is my hope. Christ is my righteousness. If that's your answer, then you don't have to worry about legalism. And instead, your love for Christ is going to fuel what we see here. And pursuing a life of freedom, not a life of fear and bondage, have to do these things. These are the things that Christ is inviting you into and has sent his Holy Spirit into your hearts. The same God thundering on the mountain is living inside your heart, thundering against your sin. That same power is in you. It's God's power for you. This is the portrait that we're going to get to see. 
So these are exciting things for us to take a look at. Are there going to be times as we look at these commandments where our conscience is going to rightly poke at us for how our lives are still not yet in conformity to Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. We're going to feel that. But we're also going to see the invitation to saying, well, do you want to be like this? And we will see how Christ is going to empower us to do what he commands. We'll never do so perfectly. But as we go through our lives, we'll get deeper and deeper drinks of this crystal clear fountain of righteousness as our lives are being shaped in freedom. This is a beautiful thing. This is something I've been thinking about all this week. When I will feel temptations to sin, I've thought to myself, I'm free from having to do this. I don't have to commit this sin right now. I don't have to be angry at the driver that's in front of me. I don't have to exaggerate my own accomplishments. I don't have to put my own desires ahead of what God wants me to do. I'm free from those things. This is what God offers to you. And I can't wait to go through these with you so that we can see just how much the Lord invites us into. But none of that is possible unless you've repented and put your faith in Christ. So if you're here today or if you're listening to the sound of my voice through our live stream or on our podcast or whatever, as you look to these commands, you must put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. You on your own are not powerful to live to do these things. You have a sin nature that has captured your heart entirely before Christ. But when Christ comes, he breaks that power. Now you have a new nature, a new creation, a new work of God whose heart is shaped, as one commentator said, a heart that is shaped like this law and beats with the same beats of God's own heart. So I hope that we can take a look at this together. I'm excited to walk us through this. And until then, let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this time where we can look into your word and see wonderful things out of your law to rejoice with the psalmist and meditate on your law day and night. Help us to see the beauty of it. Help us to see the glory of it because it points to you. Shape our hearts to be like this. Free our hearts to be like this. Help us to recognize this freedom you've already bought And may we live in that joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.